think, I think I've maybe taught 15 or 16 or 17 messages in Romans 8. This is our last one, okay? Um, and so I'm excited to approach this most glorious text. Romans 8 ends with a series of questions beginning with verse 31. And all of them are rhetorical questions, which means uh, the answer is supposed to be obvious. Uh, the answer is, it's not like, huh, I wonder what the answer is. The answer is obvious. And this comes after uh, 30 verses unpacking God, the riches of God's grace toward us in Christ, all that God has done on our behalf. And then we come to verse 31, and the question is, if God is for us, who can be against us? What's the answer? Nobody or nothing, right? Nobody and nothing can successfully be against God's people that he's for. Verse 32 then asks the question, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, God gave us his son, how will he not with his son give us every other good thing that we need? What's the answer? Of course he will. He will. He most certainly will. Then verse 33 asks this question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who can bring a case against God's elect, chosen, beloved people in the courtroom of heaven? The answer is nobody. Actually, Paul doesn't answer nobody. He answers this way. God is the one who justifies Then he asks the question in verse 34, who is to condemn? That's very much connected to the question in verse 33, but who can bring a condemning charge? Who can bring condemnation to God's people? And the answer is nobody. Now we come to the last question, and I think it's meant to present to us the climactic point of Romans 8. This is the climax. The love of God. The, the massive, mighty, glorious love of God. I mean, it is wonderful to know that God is for us now and forever, that he is on our side, that he is for us. That is glorious, wonderful. It is precious beyond words to know that since God didn't withhold Jesus from us, his only begotten son, he will withhold no good thing from us. That's precious beyond measure. It's comforting to know that we're justified by the judge of all the earth and therefore no condemning charge can sink us. But this, this is the climax. This is the top of Mount Everest, okay? The love of Christ. And I think we kind of feel this as you make your way through Romans 8. It just, it, you just has a sense that, of this crescendo, right? It's building and building and building. And then you come to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And his answer is magnificent. Romans 8 Among other things, one of the pervasive themes, or maybe I should put it this way, one of the effects Romans 8 should have on us is giving us a rich assurance. There's one argument after another to drive home the point that if you are a true believer, if you've been born again by the Spirit, if you are in Christ, you're not just saved, but you're also safe. 
Some call it eternal security. Some say once saved, always saved. I prefer the language of the perseverance of the saints. That the saints, those who are in Christ, will truly persevere to the end. And it's because of all of these massive things that God has done on our behalf in Christ. Takes, takes, takes the attention away from us. Not that our lives and how we live and how we respond, not that those things are immaterial. They are important, but it takes the, the main attention off of us and onto God and his power and his purpose and his grace in Christ. And here at, the, here at the end of Romans 8, the truth is sealed in these final five verses. You see, there are basically two ways to think about the Christian life and persevering to the end. Basically two ways to think about it. One asks this question, is my love for Christ strong enough to endure to the end? To keep and strengthen, excuse me, to, 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 to endure to the end through all the difficulties and trials and sufferings of life. Is my love for him strong enough? The other approach asks this, is Christ's love for me strong enough to keep me and strengthen me and cause me to persevere through every difficulty and every trial and every suffering in life? Those are two very different ways of approaching the Christian life. Our love for Christ is important. We sang about it. Singing that song from our hearts, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice. That is, that is precious. It's important. Our allegiance to Jesus matters. It matters in a super enormous way. But our love and allegiance to Christ is predicated on or rests upon It's grounded on, it's built upon his faithful love for us. That's why John the Apostle said, we love because he first loved us. Now, we love others and we love supremely God because he first loved us. And that's what's drawn out in these verses, the faithful love of Christ. Now, of course, I do want to say something. If there's anyone here today who is not a Christian, whether here today or listening online at some point, anyone that's not a Christian, um, the last thing I want for that person is to be comfortable in their lost state. I don't want them to be comfortable there, right? In fact, my prayer is that 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 person would be rightly disturbed and flee to Christ for salvation, even today. I heard somewhere, I, I can't remember, I probably should attribute this to someone, I should find out who said this, but, well, if there's one person that said it. But that the art, I heard somebody say once that the art of preaching is to afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. Right? To, to afflict in a, in a helpful, convicting way the comfortable. Those who are at ease in Zion, at ease in their sin, at ease in just coasting through life, preaching ought to afflict them. But true believers who have a tender conscience an afflicted conscience. Preaching ought to bring great comfort to them. And so this morning, I pray that this message has the proper effect on each one of you. If you need to be afflicted, I pray that it does that. If you need to be deeply comforted, I pray that that happens for you today. Every true child of God bought by the blood of Christ and indwelt by the Spirit 
ought to be convinced of the love of Christ and to glory in it so that you and I and all believers are emboldened to live for Jesus in this dark and perverse generation. So let's, let's jump into our, task, into our text. Paul asked the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, he could have just said nobody and nothing and moved on. But he doesn't. And I'm of the persuasion that every word in the Bible is there for a reason. Because it's all inspired, right? It's all God's very words. And so he doesn't just stand there. He doesn't just say nobody and nothing. Let's move on to the next subject. He unpacks and really belabors the point. The Holy Spirit, through the inspired apostle, wants to leave no room, no loophole. Because you know how our minds work. But what about, yeah, but, right? That's what we do. And so Paul, through the Holy Spirit, wants to leave no room, no cracked door, just a bit open, no loophole. And so the way he answers is fitting to provide a deep assurance for those who are truly in Christ that nothing and no one in all of creation can separate you and I, from the love of Christ. So here's the big idea, and it's pretty obvious, but maybe not. Here's the big idea from this text. There is no possible way that anything or anyone can separate true Christians from the love of Christ ever, in time and eternity. And so I want to look at, uh, to, to help kind of bolster this big idea, I want to look at four foundation stones that help to form this immovable, solid foundation. The first thing I want to look at is Paul's audience. Who is he talking to? The second thing I want to look at is um, we need to see what the love of Christ does for us. What does it do? It's not just a sentimental feeling, but it accomplishes something on our behalf or for us. The third is we need to adopt Paul's confidence. Paul has confidence in what he's writing here, and for good reason. And fourth, we need to remember the focal point of God's love for us, or the bullseye. So first, Paul's audience. I want you to notice who Paul is addressing here. Who can take this great promise to the bank? This is really important. The noise in our world right now is really loud. Have you noticed that? The noise is everywhere. It is really loud. Distractions are at an all-time high. And one of the things that we are distracted from is allowing the love of Christ to shape our lives both in private and in public. Paul said in Ephesians 5.1, he says, Be imitators of God and walk in love as beloved children. In other words, we imitate God and we walk in love as beloved children, which means we can't forget. We need that, the reality of being loved by God. Reed began the service with it. Deeply beloved by God, it needs to go deep into our hearts and needs to begin to shape and form our lives both in private and public. What if the loudest thing in your soul were not the pressures of your job or your business or the challenges you face in your home, or the ever-revolving door of the new toys you're looking at that you want to purchase, 
or not, it's not being caught up or staying caught up on social media or the 24-7 news cycle or the NFL playoffs? What if it was none of those things? What if the loudest thing in your soul was the love of Christ? <clears throat> that was the most pervasive theme in your soul was the love of Jesus Christ. All those other things are fine. We need to worry about our work and business and, and uh, neighbors and NFL playoffs is great. We'll be watching some football later. But what if the most pervasive thing was I am loved by Jesus Christ? I think it would affect you. I think it would impact you. And so we need to know, is this addressing me? Is this a promise for me? So often we hear texts like this and it seems to be kind of out there, right? Some, somewhere out there. Kind of sounds cool, but maybe doesn't get down into the marrow of our being and affect us. So Paul in verse 35 says, who shall separate us? Who's the us? In verse 37, he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Who's the we? In verse 39, he says, nothing in all of creation can separate us. Who is the us in verse 39? Well, we could go back to the beginning of the chapter and trace Paul's thought. But in shorthand, the answer is, it's all of those who are in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you belong to Christ, these promises are for you. It's not for those who just show up to church. It's not for those who would merely say that they're Christians. Christians in name only. Those who show up on Christmas and Easter or even faithful attenders of church. It is for those who are in Christ. Right? The, the very beginning of the chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation for who? Those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's all about being united to Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul could say in verse 32, how will God not also with him graciously give us all things? Every good and precious gift that comes to us from God as believers comes with and through Jesus Christ and being united to him. So here's the issue. Are you united to Christ? I was reading a book some years ago and um, this person said, you know, if Paul were to describe a Christian, a Christian man or woman, the way that he describes them most often in all of his letters is they are a man or a woman in Christ. To be in Christ is the, is so central to our existence. So this is a promise for those who are in Christ. You may say, well, how, okay, but how do we get in Christ? Well, of course, that comes through faith in him. Through living, conscious faith in his shed blood. And so, are you in Christ? Are you, do you have a living, conscious faith in Jesus Christ? Are you united to Jesus Christ? If so, then this is a promise for you. That nothing, no nothing, no nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ. 
Well, once you believe that this promise is for you, that this is addressing you, you need to see that the, what the love of Christ does for us or what it accomplishes. Again, Paul could have just answered the question in verse 35 with, nobody, let's call it a day, but he doesn't. Instead, he asks a series of other questions. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he says, shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. In this, we see Paul is listing out some pretty serious opponents to us, some pretty serious adversaries, pretty serious roadblocks in our mind to the love of Christ. Can these things separate us from Christ's love? No. Tribulation can't. Tribulation, the idea of tribulation is pressure, to be pressed, to be oppressed, to feel like a boulder is on your back and it's pressing you down and you feel like you're going to be squished into a pancake. Can that separate us from the love of Christ? No. Distress, distress, the idea is to be in a narrow place, similar to tribulation, but maybe slightly different, to be squeezed. Anyone here claustrophobic? Okay, I remember when I was in grade school at Northwest Elementary here in town. You know those tunnel slides? Remember those? I mean, who ever thought of that? But um, a bunch of us boys at recess, we would go down the slide and we would, we would jam into that tunnel. And I remember there were times when I was in the middle and I couldn't move and I felt squeezed <laughs> by people and all of a sudden that tunnel felt more narrow I didn't like it. Sometimes life feels that way. Can that separate, can those, those events and circumstances separate us from the love of Christ? No. What about persecution to suffer for Jesus, whether it's social ostracism or, uh, you know, physical torture or imprisonment? Can any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? No. What about famine? A lack of food. Now, it's interesting Paul mentions these things because there are some who say, well, if you're a Christian, you'll never experience it. It's like, no, 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 no. Why did he mention these things? Well, because Christians do, and actually Paul did, all of them. So lack of food, can that separate us from the love of Christ? Is that, is that a threat to the love of Christ? No. What about nakedness, exposure to the elements? It's no threat to the love of Christ. What about danger? Threat of harm. I love how Paul lays out all the things that he suffered and he goes into this list of dangers. You guys know what I'm talking about? 2 Corinthians 11. In danger on the, sea, in, on the seas, in danger in the wilderness, in danger in the cities, danger from false brothers, danger from the Jews, and the Gentiles, danger everywhere. Right? Threat of harm. Can't separate us from the love of Christ. What about the sword? Death by execution can't separate us from the love of Christ. Paul says, absolutely not. These things cannot separate us from Christ's love. Now again, I think it's worth noting that Paul experienced each one of these in his life. Well, of course, he didn't experience the sword in his life. He experienced that in his death. And he lists um, these things when he goes through his credentials as an apostle. 
2 Corinthians 11, Paul defends his apostolic calling, right? He compares his credentials to those of a group of false apostles. And here's what he said. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Think about that. Countless beatings. I mean, almost near death multiple times from somebody beating you up. Okay? Um, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul knew what it was like to suffer all of these things. And he says that none of them can separate us from the love of Christ. But again, Paul doesn't just say no. He doesn't just say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution and so forth? He doesn't just say no. It's not just that these adversaries are unable to separate us from the love of Christ. Paul goes further. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. It's worth parking here just for a moment. It's in all of these things that we conquer. It's not after these things. It's not once we get on the other side of these things. It's certainly not the idea that Christians will triumph by not having to ever face any of these things. That sort of thinking is very foreign to the New Testament. It is in all of these things. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego encountered the Lord in the fiery furnace. And we too can be confident that our loving Savior will not leave nor forsake us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death or walk through fire or through the waters or any other thing that we face. But notice how Paul says, it's in all these things that we are more than conquerors. That's a fascinating phrase. We know what it's like to conquer, right? If two men are fighting in a battle and one person defeats the other, they're the conqueror. Two armies face each other, two football teams, whatever. One is the conqueror, one's the defeated. But what is it to be more than a conqueror? Now, I actually think the ESV uh, maybe comes up short here. ESV is my translation of of choice or the version of choice of the Bible, but I think it comes up short here because it puts the emphasis on what we are instead of what we do. The word in the original language is a verb. Um, If we could transliterate it more literally, we would come up with something like, in all these things, we hyper- conquer. 
That sounds really clunky. (laughs) The New American Standard tries to do that when it says we overwhelmingly conquer. But the idea is through the love of Christ, we conquer. It's a verb. It's something that we do. It's something, well, it's something that the love of Christ accomplishes for us. Through the love of Christ, we overwhelmingly conquer. Which means that when we face danger and persecution and uh, uh, squeezing and even the sword, it's not just that they won't defeat us, we will conquer them. That's true, but it goes further than that. It means that they actually serve our ultimate good. That's where I think sometimes we we don't understand that because of the limitations of our knowledge, the limitations of what we can fathom. But in all these things, God Almighty, who causes all things to work together for our good, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us because these things actually rise up and serve our greatest good in Christ. Now, of course, we do not conquer this way through our willpower we don't conquer this way because we have, a, you know, we have a way of looking on the bright side of things or making the best of a bad situation. We, overcon- we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Jesus Christ, who loved us. So, if you are in Christ, this is a promise for you. We see that what does the love of Christ accomplish for us, it makes us overwhelmingly conquer in all the difficulties of life. Well, if we believe these things, then we need to adopt Paul's absolute confidence as ours. Verse 38 and 39 says this. After going through that, Paul says, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says, I am sure. Some translations say something like, I am convinced. I am confident. It's like when Paul says back in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We know this. I'm sure of this, Paul says. I am absolutely confident. Paul is utterly convinced that nothing and nobody can separate us from the love of God. This is Paul's confidence, and and Paul wants his readers to adopt this confidence. And we know this Because Paul doesn't just say, I am convinced that nothing can separate me from the love of God in Christ. Now, Paul could say that, and you and I can say that, but praise God that the inspired apostle wants his readers who are in Christ to also know that there's nothing that can separate us. He says, I am sure that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And we see something similar that we saw in verse 35. A list is made, right? Paul could just say, guys, we're more than, more than conquerors through him who loved us, so nothing can separate us. But Paul doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. 
He gives us another list of several things that are paired together. Paul says, I am convinced that neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Physical death in any form, death cannot separate us. Neither can life. Anything that's associated with living, all of the things that attend to living in these bodies, nothing in death and life can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And when we consider how out of control we actually are of our lives, we have to humbly agree that this is good news, right? One of my daughters, or they share their shirts, I don't know whose it is, but has a shirt that on the back it says, not in control, but loved by the one who is, something like that. I love that. And that's, praise God. But if we're honest, sometimes we like to think that we're in control. And we can kind of maneuver here and do this and that and kind of set things up to, to be to our liking. But we're not in control. So we, ha- we have to, uh, I think it was Bilbo that said to Frodo, it's a dangerous business, Frodo. Going out the front door, right? Uh, you step onto the road and if you don't watch your step, you never know where you're going to be swept off to. I think I kind of mangled that a bit, but... It's a dangerous business walking out the front door. You don't know what's going to happen in a day. So neither death nor life can separate us from the love of God in Christ. What confidence we can have that nothing in all of life, no danger we meet on the road of life, and death itself, nor death itself, can separate us from God's love. But he goes on and says, nor angels nor rulers can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Of course, I I think this speaks of the spiritual realm. There are dangers in the physical world, right? Um, There are dangers in the spiritual world. Good angels, which I don't know why good angels would try to separate us from Christ's love, but angels can't separate us from the love of Christ. And rulers, which I think probably refers to nefarious spiritual authorities, evil spiritual authorities. They can't separate us from Christ's love. It's true that the devil is a roaring lion seeking to devour believers. And we must stand firm against him. We must resist him. We must fight against spiritual forces in high places. But the foundation upon which we do that is that the devil and all his hordes of demons cannot separate us from our Savior and his love. Paul goes on and says, nor things present nor things to come can separate us from the love of of God in Christ. Think about current events that we face. We face challenges, no doubt big ones, but they can never separate you and I from the love of God. And future events can't either. Right? Events unseen and completely unknown to us. Perhaps trying times that the world has never known. These things cannot separate us from the love of Christ and we can rest assured in that. There's a song, it's an old song, 
I think it's old anyways. I, I, heard first, I first heard it on a Chris Rice album, hymns album many years ago. It's called, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Has anyone ever heard that before? It says, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go, I rest my weary soul in thee. It's meant to, it's meant to be a place for us to rest, knowing that we are loved with this mighty, powerful, gracious, faithful love of God in Christ. Paul goes on to say, nor height nor depth can separate us from the love of God. Probably Paul has in mind heaven or hell. Neither the height of heaven nor the depths of hell can separate us from the love of God. And then he ends this way, just in case someone's looking for a loophole. Someone's like, yeah, but what about Right, all this whataboutism. Paul says this, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Nothing in all of creation. Some people are certain that true believers can escape the love of God and Paul says, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Now you think about what he's saying. Nothing in all of creation. So you got creation, and then you have the creator, right? Nothing, no created thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And God has already made it clear that those who run to Christ for refuge will never, ever, ever be forsaken. So we looked at who this promise is for. It's for those who are in Christ. What the love of, God do, love of God in Christ does for us, it causes us to overwhelmingly conquer. We now, I hope, can adopt, I hope you will, adopt Paul's confidence. And finally, let's make sure that our focal point of the love of God is remembered. What is the focal point of the love of God. What's this bullseye, if you will, that connects us with God's love? Verse 39 ends this way. It says, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul switches. Earlier he talked about the love of Christ and him who loves us. Here in verse 39 he talks about the love of God in Christ. Well, I'm not exactly sure why he does that. It could be that he wants to make clear that those Christ loves in this faithful way, the Father also loves, right? The Father and the Son are one. And it's not like Jesus loves a certain group of people and the Father doesn't. That'd be weird. And that's true and that's important, so it could be that. But I think there could be something else in play here as well. And it's this. How is the Father's love demonstrated to us most clearly? How is the Father's love manifest, expressed? How has it been shown to us most clearly? It is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Namely, or specifically, in the giving of his Son. That is the height of the love of God. I mean, if you want to know, how do I know that God loves me? Especially 
when all hell seems to be breaking loose on you, where does the Bible point us? To the cross, right? It points us to the cross. It points us to that place where God's love is most clearly demonstrated to us. We so often look at our circumstances as the measure of God's love. I mean, let's just be honest. Circumstances, they hit us, right? They, we, feel, we feel them. They're challenging. And so we, we, we have these hard things that come against us and we might be tempted to think, I thought God loved me. Where's the love of God? The way for the love of God to ring louder in our souls than the noise of this world is to come back again and again and again and again to the cross. That is the demonstration and the measure of the love of God for us. It's the cross. John 3.16, we all know it so well, clearly says this. There's a good, there's a, there's a good reason why John 3.16 is known so well. I mean, it, it really is the full gospel in one sentence. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It says, for God so loved the world. It doesn't say that he moderately loved the world. He so loved the world. What's the world? This place with a whole bunch of rebel sinners? He loved the world. You might think, well, if the world's you know, full of people like me, well, of course he didn't. <laughs> but we need to have a more accurate assessment of things. right? He came to, he, he loved a world full of rebel sinners and sent his son He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He gave us his son. This is the demonstration of his love. 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Listen to this. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love. That's the demonstration of love. I mean, God shows us love in many other ways, but this is the bullseye. This is the biggie, right? This is the the main thing. This is the focal point. And it will be for all eternity, I believe. What's the song that's sung in heaven? Worthy is the lamb who was slain to ransom for for himself a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is the demonstration. This is how we know. This is what we look to. This is what we look at. God sent his only son into the world. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, NIV says atoning sacrifice. Propitiation means it's a sacrifice that removes wrath. God sent his son to be the sacrifice that would remove wrath from us. That's his love. Romans 5, 5 and 6, this connects the work of the Father, Son, and Spirit with the demonstration of God's love on the cross. 
when he says that, when Paul writes this, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Who did he die for? The ungodly. <laughs> Undeserving people like me and like you. So Paul says, I am utterly convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Are you? If you were convinced, or if we were convinced of this, what kind of difference would it make in our life? Let me just give you a couple of things that I, I think some effects it would have on us. And I pray that these effects are known by you and maybe even increased from our time today. Here's one thing. It would give us a joyful courage. Not just courage to fight or whatever, but a joyful courage, a happy courage. Think about this. Imagine you got this lake and it's covered by like, you know, 12 inches of ice. And you got two guys that need to set out across the lake. And one guy is really timid and he's unsure if the ice is going to hold him. So he kind of inches his way out and kind of taps his foot. And, and the other guy just makes off and hoots and hollers across the lake. Woohoo, this is awesome. Praise God, you know, and just makes his way across the lake without a worry in the world. That can be you and I in this life, resting in, confident in the love of God in Christ that nothing or no one can separate us from. That kind of joyful courage. You're loved by God and he will not let you go. But here's something else. If you and I really, if this really sank deeper into us, we would have a deepened desire to spread this love of Christ to others. Certainly, starting with the people just around us, right, our home and our church family, and but maybe specifically, we would have a desire for those who are outside of Christ, who have no part in this right now anyways, that they would come to know it, to know the deep and profound love of Christ. It's, it's in 2 Corinthians 5, the end of the chapter, Paul talks about being an ambassador for Christ. God making his appeal through Paul be reconciled to God. But it's just about eight verses earlier where Paul says, the love of Christ controls me. So we would have joyful courage. We would have a deepened desire to spread this love to those around us. I want to read um, in closing here. There's a prayer book. I couldn't find my hard copy this morning, so I had to look it up. There's a prayer book called Valley of Vision. It's uh, a bunch of old prayers, Puritan prayers, and um, there's one on the love of God, and it goes like this. Help me to approach thee with deepest reverence, not with presumption, not with servile fear, but with holy boldness. Thou art beyond my grasp, or the grasp of my understanding, but not beyond that of my love. Thou knowest that I love thee supremely, 
for thou art supremely adorable, good, and perfect. My heart melts at the love of Jesus, my brother, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, married to me, dead for me, risen for me. He is mine, and I am his. I am never so much mine as when I am his, or so much lost to myself until lost in him. Then I find my true manhood, personhood, I think we could say. But my love is frost and cold, ice and snow. Let his love warm me. Lighten my burden. Be my heaven. May it be more revealed to me in all its influences that my love to him may be far more fervent and glowing. Let the mighty tide of his everlasting love cover the rocks of my sin and care. Then let my spirit float above those things which had, el- which had else wrecked my life. Make me fruitful by living to that love, my character becoming more beautiful every day. If traces of Christ's love and artistry be upon me, May he, work on, may he work on with his divine brush until the complete image be obtained and I be made a perfect copy of him, my master. Amen? Well, we're to be convinced of this. Here's what Paul says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. No loopholes. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice in your great love. Uh, Most clearly.